0: What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Now, look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation.
1: From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Adam Kempinar. And I'm Josh Larson. 35% of listeners just involuntarily swooned, Adam. Count me among them. That's Yumeji's theme, originally written for the 1991 film Yumeji, but used to memorably potent effect by director Wong Kar-wai in 2000's In the Mood for Love.
0: This week, Wong's masterpiece is the final film in our World of Wong Kar-wai marathon, plus our top five movie romantic gestures. That and more. Don't worry, Adam. I've hung on to my boombox from middle school,
1: and I'm going to bring it along for the top five. It's all ahead on Film Spotting. Welcome to film spotting. So, Josh, this week we were all set to review the new Candyman, but it turns out that we are actually taping this show at the exact same time we would need to be watching that film. So, we will have to put off Candyman. I've now said it twice. I've said it twice in the span of like 15 seconds. Am I in trouble? <laughs> I'm.
0: This is killing me. I mean, to know that there are people sitting in a theater right now, there are people watching their screener links right now yeah. of Candyman, and I'm here talking to you. I mean, I know.
1: How, how did this end up this way? I don't know. Well, I'm not going to say the name one more time, lest I get close to the dreaded five, but that movie is one we will plan to give at least a few minutes to on next week's show. Instead, we dipped into the film spotting archives for a top five that seemed like a pretty good pairing with our World of Wong Kar Wai review of In the Mood for Love. It's our top five movie romantic gestures going way back into the archive, Josh, 2013. Yeah, I think my, what, my first
0: year, within my first year, or maybe my second year on the show. But that that was a good one. That was a fun list. I'm glad we're revisiting it. We'll let listeners be the judge of that. That top five will come later in the show. But first, let's get to that review of In the Mood for Love, the sixth and final film in our World of Wong Kar Wai Marathon. This marathon has been inspired by Wong's recent restoration of seven of his best-known films, all of which are included in the Criterion Collection's New World of Wong Kar Wai box set. Thankfully, these are also available. They're currently streaming on the Criterion channel right now. In the Mood for
1: Love debuted at the 2000 Cannes Film Festival, where it was nominated for The Palm Door and star Tony Leung won the Fess Best Actor Prize. It opened here in the States in March 2001 to pretty universal critical acclaim, but maybe this is something we can talk a little bit about, Josh. My feeling is that its reputation has only grown over the last 20 years. For example, back at the end of the last decade in late 2009, The Guardian had In the Mood for Love as its 48th best film of the decade. Fast forward 10 years later, for a best films of the 21st century list, mood had moved up all the way, Number five. And then in 2016, the BBC pulled over 100 critics for a Best Movies of the 21st Century list, and In the Mood for Love landed at number two, right behind, no real surprise to me, my beloved Mulholland Drive from director David Lynch, another film that has probably only grown in esteem over the years. Quickly, the plot it's set in early 1960s Hong Kong sort of picks up where Days of Being Wild left off, Josh. It's part of an informal trilogy with that film and Wong's later film 2046. Tony Leung and Maggie Chung are neighbors in a cramped boarding house. They're both married, they're both lonely, and they soon realize that their spouses are having an affair with each other. Leung and Chung bond over this betrayal and eventually do get quite close, but never act on their feelings for each other. This being a Wong Kar Wai movie after all, Josh, give us a little bit of your history within the mood for love. And how did it play this time for you in the context of the marathon? I feel like you deemed happy together. The last movie we discussed as the high point of the marathon so far, maybe even rated it slightly higher than King express. Have we gone to yet another level here within the mood for love? For me, yes. Uh, And I think, you know, thinking back on when
0: I first saw this, it's a little murky for me because I've seen it a handful of times since 2000, but it wouldn't have been within the first, you know, six months or year of its release, probably because... Um, I've never written about it. I didn't have it on my top 10 list that year, which I know we had some fun at Trivia Spotting with my 2000 top 10 list. Uh All of them are suspect, but trust me, I would not have overlooked this if I had seen it in time. Why I didn't see it within that first year, I can't remember or really explain, but I remember seeing it fairly soon after, loving it then, and just loving it more. Um, The time or two, I saw it since. It's been a few years now. And yeah, I think, you know, if its reputation isn't any stronger than it was initially, it has certainly, you you cited those lists that it's made, it's certainly fended off a lot of comers in the years since it's been released to still stand as a monumental achievement, um, not only, you know, for Wong, but cinema itself. And as far as Wong's filmography goes... I do think it's the pinnacle. Um, I think at this point, I only have one Wong film left that I need to see, uh, My Blueberry Nights, but I I don't think that's going to knock this off. Maybe the happy together distinction for me is that um, it's just so assured and confident and a little... I'm trying to think of the right phrase that doesn't sound like I'm dismissing the previous films, which I've loved, but a little calmer a little um mm-hmm. less forced isn't the right word because yeah. if you think it's all of, about restraint it's all about restraint and the filmmaking matches that so if you think mm-hmm. about you know what we had early on in in something like Fallen Angels and the anticness of that, which was really compelling, or Chunking Express, those pop song rhythms, which I loved. All of those flourishes are strengths of Wong's filmmaking and his previous films. But here you just get something that is dialed down a little bit, even from Happy Together. I would argue because mm-hmm. you know Happy Together has um, those black and white segments, maybe a little more ostentatious use of the camera here mm-hmm. or there um in terms of slow motion i think it's very familiar from happy together happy together is the close it's like this is just one step further in terms of the aesthetics from happy together and it's a it's a perfection of what he was Working on in that film, mm-hmm. I think. Um, so, you know, I don't want to waste a lot of time, you know, saying why it's better than these other wonderful films. I just love this movie so much. And on another revisit, it's one that you might think, okay, there isn't a ton of plot here. So, how many times can you watch this before there might not be enough to engage in? Well, um, you know, there'll be a new lamp in the background that you'll engage with this mm-hmm. time because y- you have the time now to just sit and appreciate why that lamp was chosen where it's placed in the shot how, yeah. what colors it's it's reflecting or working with um, how the typewriter in this scene perfectly matches Maggie Chung's dress and, and all say, these or
1: maybe you just didn't pay attention to a certain dress the third time Ex- or fourth yeah, time yeah, there's, there's, yeah
0: this is so rich that it, it's open to endless viewings and I certainly enjoyed this most recent
1: one I had yeah I'm with you, and when we do ultimately finish this marathon, we will culminate with our World of One Car Wide Marathon Awards, and we were looking for a name, and a listener on Twitter responded to us, and I won't get it right, I couldn't find it, so I apologize to the listener, maybe you can find it, Josh, who threw out this suggestion, but we will definitely mention you when we get to those awards, they said... You know, you guys keep talking about Tony Leung and how great he is and how he's the unsung kind of master collaborator of this marathon. Maybe unsung is not quite the right word because we keep talking about him. The suggestion was maybe we should call cheekily, we should call the awards the Tonys. And I know we both like that idea a lot. But of course, now you watch In the Mood for Love. And I start to question whether or not it's really Tony Leung, because maybe it's Maggie Chung, Mm -hmm. who's been in multiple films so far. Or what about Christopher Doyle, who I think has lensed all of the movies so far? And maybe my real answer, as far as who is the MVP, the MVP collaborator, the MVC will go with Josh. William Chang as the costume designer and the production designer here. I mean, well, and that's in interesting of, because it, it, those things work so well together as I was already hinting at that it makes yeah. perfect sense that the same eye is behind both. Absolutely. And Cheng was at least the production designer. I don't have his IMDb up, but he was at least the production designer on every other film in this marathon and we have talked about it a lot. I'm with you though. This is just this is perfection. <laughs> this is a perfect end to this marathon beyond some of those stylistic flourishes and the design and the costume design we're touching on, this is the ultimate expression of all of the key themes and concerns we've discussed so far, loneliness. When you think about it, how this relationship, if we can really call it that, how it starts is that these are just two people who need somebody to talk to. That's really it, right? They are so alone. And this idea of having unfulfilled desire or hopeless love, whatever terminology you want to apply to his films. And we've talked about how rarely in this marathon we've actually seen sexual passion or explicit eroticism. Well, here, I mentioned the whole film was about restraint. It's all built around the conceit of Chow and Mrs. Chan not acting on their feelings, right, and maintaining these Appearances of. Propriety. And. I've noted that. Wong seems preoccupied with the notion. That love is really only good. When it's not realized. Or maybe to put a finer point on it. When it's not. Consummated. And the. Chinese version or one version of this movie's title. At least according to. The Criterion Collection. Edition notes is. Kind of like the most beautiful times. And. If you think about it, it's so appropriate, of course, because at the end of this movie, aren't they both trying to kind of recapture their past to an extent or at least parts of it? Even if they have no intentions of actually seeing each other again, they're romanticizing this time of their life, despite the fact that it's one in which both of their spouses were cheating on them and they had to completely withhold their feelings for each other. I also think that the title transitions perfectly to the next obsession and it's that that use of the words kind of like wong's characters love to act to play pretend to create scenarios and to try on other roles in order to kind of try to process their feelings and their understanding of the world and we see these characters here actually kind of trace the steps of their spouses and they play out and discuss how he's acting like her husband and vice versa and that line, how how devastating and great a line is Maggie Chung's, we won't be like them. Mm. She says it so matter of factly, but it's almost as if she, by saying it, is making it so. It's this directive that she's putting out into the world, and there's just there's just a little bit of, of hesitation, maybe, or her being unsure when she says that line. But it's just devastating because you immediately understand that motivation of not wanting to be like these spouses who have made them feel this way. And of course you understand the consequences of that directive as well saying we'll be, we'll be better than them basically, even if it means we're worse off, <laughs> even if it means we have to pretend this very real thing is not real. And, and it's just a fantasy to us. So they're, they're driven maybe by morality to an extent and also perhaps masochism, <laughs> but that, yeah. that kind of masochism is real that feeling is real and intense and maybe more intense and something more transcendent than actually succumbing to your desires at least at least that's what they hope and At least that's what it seems Wong is exploring here.
0: Yeah, I don't know how much actual pleasure they get from it, but they are inflicting more pain on themselves than necessary, Mm -hmm. not only by just being together, but by the role playing that you're talking about. And Chung has another devastating line, and we're going to be citing two lines here, even though there isn't a lot of dialogue in this movie. I think a lot of the exquisite work is done without dialogue, but uh, there is another role playing sequence where um, she's imagining her husband confessing, Mr. Chow's playing the husband. Husband here, um, and she just breaks down mm-hmm. when he does and says, "I didn't expect it to hurt so much." And what that mm-hmm. reveals is that you know they've been doing this role playing as a way of building up defenses, um, mm-hmm. as a way of not facing the reality. And at that point, it all falls apart. Mm-hmm. I think she is so magnificent in this movie because, um, She's She has even more reticence than Liang does, at least her character, Mrs. Chan. I love going back to the dresses here. It's it's built into the costume design because these are these, um, I think they're Cheongsam dresses. So the neck, the very high neck. And it's it's like there's this wall actually built around her, hmm. under her chin, just keeping things out. And that sequence is where it just just does all come it invades like the the mm-hmm. hurt invades and we see it on her face. This is where, you know, the implacable expression we've seen her have so much, even even to Mr. Chow, you know, she only lets him in so far. It does come crashing down here. And and it echoes a later scene, years later, where she's just standing by, she revisits the apartment complex and is just standing by a window, and you see her forcing down those exact same tears. So I think Cheung is amazing in this and it's hard to talk about them separately because this is Mm -hmm. one of those paired performances where what one does helps the other in the performance. They have this, um, you know, they're in perfect rhythm. Her reticence is in perfect rhythm with Leung's reserve because he is kind of tapping into something we've seen before. I think he has more of the resigned melancholy. We saw as the beat Mm -hmm. cop in chunking express than he did in Happy Together, there was more of a spurned anger, I think. Here he's more back to this resigned melancholy. I like how he claims at one point that he doesn't brood over his wife's infidelities. Um, and his friend says, Well, all that means is that you're quote bottled up, right? Mm-hmm. And so so this is more costume design coming into play. His immaculate suits, his perfectly combed hair. That all suggests, yeah, yeah he's not rough. It's, but it's an armor. Yeah. He, he's pretending not to be ruffled by this, but watch Leung's eyes. And this goes back to the, you know, we don't need dialogue, how they change every time he looks at her at Mrs. Chan. It's like a, there's some panicked longing there, um, because he, it, it's reminding him of what he's suffering It's also reminding him of the pledge they made together and how he really doesn't want to stick to that because I think he makes more moves watching this again than she does to kind of break that pledge. He's always respectful, but he opens the door or at least knocks on the door a couple Mm -hmm. of times and you see that in his eyes as well. So um, these two are just so perfectly in sync in this film um, that you can't imagine it working at all without one of them if you substitute a different actor.
1: Yeah, to your point, isn't it his hand we see one or two times reaching for hers? I believe so, yeah. It's never hers reaching for his. But you mentioned that scene, the role-playing with the confrontation about the infidelity. And what I love about the two big scenes that I would call not just role-playing scenes but rehearsal scenes are that— Wong really employs some fabulous misdirection to just add an extra bit of charge to the scene for the viewer. So in that scene, because he has made a decision from the very beginning to veil the spouses, we never see them. We hear them. Right. They're behind closed doors. Sometimes they're on the other side of a wall. We see the backs of their head, but we never actually see them. That means that when she is seated there and we're looking at her seated to the side and he is directly in front of us with his back turned to the camera as he sits there's a second where I felt anyway that oh the husband's returned and she's actually she is confronting him and of course it turns out that it's it's not it's the rehearsal it's the rehearsal of that confrontation and she gets to act through it and see and experience those emotions with Tony Leung and then near the end What seems to be their breakup? It's the moment where you think they have finally decided that this surely isn't going to work. What is inevitable? What they even know is inevitable, that they're never going to come together. So they say goodbye to each other. And we as viewers, at least I did, Josh, again, maybe I wasn't paying close enough attention. I was watching, though, thinking, oh, man, this is it. This is the goodbye. And then to find that Leung basically says, no, remember, that's just the rehearsal. Mm. <laughs> you know, that's just the, that's just the practice. We still, we still get to be with each other for at least a little while longer. It's really powerful. And I think there's really something powerful to that whole notion of cinema, I think, being this tool. I've argued this before. Cinema being a tool for us as viewers to rehearse how we engage with the world. We see how other people act and behave in situations that we have seen ourselves in or imagine ourselves could be in, or maybe imagine that we could never handle and we see how they go through it. And maybe it informs our sense of the world. Well, now imagine if you were a filmmaker like Wong Kar Wai, who is not only a passive viewer, but you're the one who's getting to sort of act out. You're getting to rehearse. You're getting to stage these scenes and act out your your deepest fears and longings through these these mini plays within within this larger construct, it, it's just something that, that really appeals to me. And I don't know if I've said it before in this marathon, but that infatuation with role-playing, I imagine is a reason why, whether he's articulated it or not, I don't know why Quentin Tarantino has always been such a fan of Wong Kar Wai, because they share that same obsession. So we're both
0: talking with, um, you know, fair confidence about the nature of this relationship and how it ends up and it's interesting because just before we start recording here I had a comment from a listener on my letterbox logging of watching this movie Warner West who um, basically has a question for us about the ending so maybe we'll return to that and it it happens to involve how we understand their relationship so remind me that we'll return to it speaking of listeners um, yes it was Ellen Cheshire at mm-hmm. C H E S H E L L E N on Twitter, who suggested the Tonys, which is just so good, fantastic. So, I think we've probably covered the performances, uh, even though there's maybe more we could say, but definitely highlights. I want to jump back to the filmmaking and um, just talk about some of these pure mood moments that we get mm. in this film where uh, I'm afraid by by talking about this being a more reserved movie for someone who hasn't seen it, they might think it's um, more conventional than his other pictures. And it's absolutely not like this is, this is pure Wong Kar because we get these mood moments, including mm-hmm. the montage of them passing each other on the way to the noodle stall. Um, maybe my favorite sequences in the film, it's something that is recurring. It kind of at first shows us their loneliness. They're going out to get, dinner because they are not going to cook it for someone else. There's no one else home. They're each in this situation and they pass each other a handful of times and this is where the slow motion comes into play. Um, this is where that theme music, uh, the Shigeru Umbayashi's Yumeji's theme comes into play. And even that is interesting. You know how it has these lilting violins to it. It's it's somewhat similar to the tango music we heard in Happy Together. Um, but also it, it seems like even a step back from that in terms of its um, its pace and its rhythm. And uh, it's just the slow motion in here is also very judicious. Sometimes it's raining when they're doing this, that adds another level to it. And um, those, I could have watched them go back and forth to get their noodles, like for <laughs> for the entire running yeah. time of this movie, just for the little variations each time in where the camera is, how much lighting is allowed in that stairway, so that they can not really see each other's faces the next time maybe they do see each other's faces a little bit more. And it's all these imperceptible changes that are so important. Um and and that is where the the emotional element of this just hits me the hardest. You you it's like you're watching these two halves of a broken heart throb when they pass each other. Hmm. And it captures everything that you need to know about where they are at in that moment. And it carries through past where they even go together so that that's, that's like, that's what their time together was passing each other on those stairways, even if they do end up becoming a little
1: closer later. I mentioned the veiling technique with the spouses. Everything is so secretive here and Wong has so much fun. I would say with that tension, as I was jotting down some notes, when I noticed this, the first maybe one or two times, I posed a question to myself. Josh, you're an expert film critic and note taker. Do you, do you sometimes just write questions to yourself that you know you need to return to? You don't know the answer to, but you know you need to return to them? Yeah, sure, sure. So I wrote down, why does the camera hide? Oh, I and, love that. I love that touch. And as you- It's always down the a film, hall, right? Yeah, as you keep watching the film, you realize even the camera- in In the Mood for Love, has to steal glances. The view is always through a reflection in a mirror, or it's under the table, or it's through a window, or it's through a curtain, or it's through a curtain of smoke. Talk about a movie that makes smoking (laughs) look so glamorous. The way Christopher Doyle's camera captures that haze is really pretty magnificent. And just in general, how many times do we see them Obscured, to go back to your point too about the lighting, and as they pass each other, it's as if you are eavesdropping on them. It's as if you are there in the hallway, that cramped hallway. Again, it's Wong relying on a very close technique, not a lot of master shots, though, of course, when we get on the street and there are some elements to the production design where we do kind of take in the expanse of the scene, but especially when they're indoors, when they're in those apartment settings, when they're moving in together, he's really emphasizing how close they are. You're always seeing them in a medium shot or medium close up or a close up. So that that eavesdropping sort of effect adds to that tension. But then how about this? I'm going to ask you, A question here, Josh. And I think the fact that there maybe isn't one answer or one go to answer for a hundred people you pose this question to helps signify just how special this movie is. But if I asked you, let's skip romantic gestures for now. We're going to get to that eventually. And there are multiple in this film. And there's one really amazing one that did in fact make your top five from this movie back in 2013. But when we do talk about eroticism, something something close to sexiness, true sultry sexiness in this film, something that actually kind of radiates some real intensity. Do you have a moment like that from this movie?
0: That one that I jotted down. So um, my three seconds response is maybe a strange one, but how about when he says, um, then I'll spend some time with you here, or then I'll wait it out here when they, she is caught in the rain Hmm. in the alley under a light, doesn't want to get that dress wet, which I completely understand. So she's kind of, you know, under an awning and he comes, it's kind of that whole sequence. Actually, he's coming from another direction, sees her, he's running in his suit in the rain, Ducks under the awning next door, offers his jacket to her. She says, we can't go in together. Or if th- they see your jacket, they'll know. He runs and gets an umbrella, brings it back. She says, I can't take your umbrella. So after all these romantic gestures, he finally just says, and I, I wish I could remember the words, but then I'll just be here with you. And leans back against the wall. And I love the next beat. Silence. That They don't say anything to each other. And they just... That to me, I don't know why, is like
1: incredibly sexy. <laughs> they're, yeah. they're just ladies, completely, ladies, completely silence, comfortable sitting there together. Is sexy for Josh Larson, there you go.
0: What What did you say? It is. I think you just mischaracterized. Silence is sexy. Well, I I I just think it's yeah. I don't yeah. I don't know why. There's just something
1: about that shared moment that they mm-hmm. have together where nothing else needs to be said. Okay. Well, I'm going to give you mine. Okay. I think it's during the dinner that is really their first true role-playing excursion kind of a date where they are taking on the characters of their spouses or the other's spouse and there's a moment where we see and the camera really does emphasize it because it cuts to as I recall cuts to Tony Leung's hand as he grabs what I think is probably some hot mustard and then it follows him as he puts it on her plate now even before this I'll just mention when we're talking about technique, this is a movie where the camera is mostly pretty still. We've talked about how restrained overall the, I know where you're going. Is. I love yeah. this camera move. Yeah. But then all of a sudden, just in this scene, there's a couple of quick pans yeah. between them.
0: It's almost like a talking. slide, right? It slides yeah. like from behind them right up next to them, which is exactly. as you're saying, like very ostentatious compared to what we've been getting.
1: But I think it, it, helps just add some electricity yes, to a scene and a moment that seems like it otherwise might be fairly, I don't know, harmless. And then we get that moment when he, he dabs the mustard on her plate and you see her consider it. And just in that consideration in her silence, I think it's pretty clear to us that this isn't maybe something that she would normally eat. She clearly didn't grab it on her own and put it on her plate to eat with whatever she's eating but he has put it on her plate for her and she hesitates and then what does she do? She dips her entree into it and and then eats it as voraciously as, as Maggie Chung does anything voraciously in this movie but I swear to you Josh at the exact moment I'm thinking to myself wow that was hot <laughs> he says do you like it hot? <laughs> And and let's be clear, <laughs> Tony Leung is not Roger Moore. I don't know that there's any double entendre intended. There's nothing winking about his performance. He doesn't maybe need even, he doesn't need double entendres. No, he really doesn't. Right? I mean, he's a walking double entendre. But but maybe the English translation even is sort of misleading because that's not really what he's saying. Or maybe Wong is winking at us there in that moment, even if Leung isn't. But he asks her, "Do you like it hot?" in the subtitle. And I'm telling you in that moment, before he even said it, I really was responding to how charged that scene was. I could give you the play by play and really make my point, but I think Josh, it would make you blush. And I don't want to embarrass you here on the show, but it is undeniably sexual. It's undeniably sexual because it's about, it's about power. He doesn't ask. He puts it on her plate. He makes the move to put it on her plate to basically suggest that he wants her to, to try that to eat it, and she does. She submits to it. It's it's a pretty incredible scene. I'm so glad you asked this question
0: because it, it clarified another important distinction between us, Adam. I I prefer quiet intimacy, and and you like dirty talk. So I'm, dirty talk. <laughs> I'm glad and, and we know also, this now.
1: And hot mustard. <laughs> I thought you were actually gonna put it in this way. That I just realized. My epiphany was you find you find silence sexy. I find food sexy
0: well the, yeah it kind of has a mixture of dirty talk and food so i i think with that we should move on um for everyone's sakes so let's okay, go he's, let's he's, go to
1: something rad, everybody i can see him
0: let's go to something uh far less sexy and uh talk about politics because it's something you brought up i forget if it Charles was DeGall. with uh, all <laughs> happy <sexy>. yeah yeah <laughs> totally uh happy together maybe you brought this up and i don't have an answer but i have it was in the back of my mind since you touched on it um and, and I have, like, just an inkling from watching this film and where it ends up. You know, we have this sequence a couple of years later. I think we're about 66 now. Um, and the politics kind of come into play in some oblique ways, I think. Though it is interesting, before this... Last sequence, Adam, you get that comment. I think it's when we're back at the atar- apartment building a couple years later. It might be like 64 at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, and a new resident, I think, says people are leaving Hong Kong because things have gotten, quote, too chaotic. So right. that's kind of like a little hint of some instability. But this sequence is in Cambodia at the end, 1966. And yeah, we get this newsreel footage all of a sudden. I guess to set, you know, at first I'm like, okay, this is setting the time and place, but it's this parade, I think, with the prince and princess and French president Charles de Gaulle. Um, and so I'm thinking, okay, this is 66, I did just some brief, very brief research, mm-hmm. but it looks like that would have been just before the Vietnam War kind of destabilized Cambodia and, and, and spread into Cambodia. Then we get that final sequence in Angkor Wat, where we're just with Mr. Chao Leung and um, he is, maybe I don't want to spoil all of it, but this is the the, the romantic gesture. But he's mm-hmm. he's basically wandering the um, the ruined ancient temple complex there. So a, a lost civilization that is um, no longer. It's basically something that tourists go to visit at this point. And so I'm realizing that you know all of these things are suggestions of um, not only. Like territories that are being destabilized in Hong Kong, countries in Cambodia, and then an entire civilization that has failed to last. Mm -hmm. And I'm just thinking of, you know, how could he have expected that this relationship, first of all, his own marriage to last, then this relationship to last when like these massive civilizations crumble in the face of what? A Wong obsession, time. All of these things are suggestions of time bearing down. Things are about to change um, the way that things always change. And um, instability is the only constant. And as we've seen, unhappiness because of that is often the only constant. So that's just kind of a vague stab at Maybe some of the political tie-ins, I know it doesn't get into any of the Mm -hmm. details of the realities of Hong Kong during this era or later, Um, you know, eventually, what, 30 years later, would have been transferred um, uh, from
1: colonial rule to China. But um, maybe that's something. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think you've said it very well. I think there's always a sense, at least in these six films that we've watched, of destabilization looming. It's it's always there. And sometimes it is more direct. Sometimes it's a little more oblique. Here, it is interesting. That moment when all of a sudden we cut to newsreel footage is so jarring compared to everything we've seen before. This mood piece where we are just enveloped in this world and these dresses and the production design that we've touched on. And then all of a sudden we're watching Charles de Gaulle. It's like we've we've... All of a sudden been thrust into the real world and we've been in a fantasy up until this point it reminded me actually in a way in a completely different way but it it took me out of the moment in the same sort of fascinating way that the end of Kiristami's taste of cherry where all of a sudden we get some home movie footage and if I'm remembering correctly we see Kiristami himself like making the movie that we just watched so again very different but in some ways for me a uh, similar effect where you are taken out of this kind of hypnotic reverie with this movie and reminded that, oh, all of this is happening in in a real world, a much larger world where they're just one kind of tiny speck in the universe. And that, of course, I think does set up ultimately the grandness of that romantic gesture. So maybe that is a nice way to get back to the question you posed. And I don't know if we want to go ahead and throw out that if people want to not have in the mood for love further spoiled they could stop listening at this point but warner west i believe warner west in atlanta he's in the atl josh what's his question what's his query
0: Yeah. So again, this is on Letterboxd. He he said that In the Mood for Love is likely my favorite Wong Kar Wai film. I was interested in the film spotting team's take on the ending. I believe I got the same interpretation as you in my several watches, but I know others interpret their relationship differently, particularly in regards to who we see with Maggie Cheung in her final scene. So um, I did not respond to him yet. So I'm just kind of guessing what he's hinting at. But um, towards the end is where we see her return to rent an an apartment in the same complex where they were years earlier and she has a child with her Um, so I'm wondering if what Warner is suggesting I haven't read others takes but that this may be Mr. Chow's child that they did in fact consummate the relationship at some point there is a scene where they the role playing they even go to a hotel where they believe their respective spouses have been meeting um, and we don't see anything but they're there there's a room there um, so it could have been something that happened off screen um, and resulted in this child that he doesn't know about right because he happens to be visiting um, either at the same time or a few scenes later stops in front of the door thinks about knocking but doesn't uh, it's another just great Wong Kar Wai like mm-hmm. t- you know time shifting in just the wrong way moment so yeah I mean I, I definitely considered this as I was watching as like you know have we just not seen them take that step i like to think adam for the reasons we've been talking about that it's in keeping with all of the other films <laughs> he has made that they would not have um and that retains it's it's not even really the moral question as much as the um the auteurist question <laughs> you know it retains the auteurist integrity of his filmography but I can totally see that reading, and that, in fact, would add another layer of melancholy and sadness if he did not only miss on reuniting with her, but his child, potentially. But I don't know. Did Where did you uh, kind of come down on that?
1: Well, I think anybody watching, no matter the experience you're having with the film or how you're interpreting it up to that point, I think that moment where you realize that she no longer seems to have a husband but does have a child you do instantly wonder i mean we've seen this trope a million times in other movies right where a couple that had a fling they they separate and oh they had a child and the man doesn't know about it but eventually does discover the news for me i just can't i can't abide that reading of the film i think it's it's too <laughs> it's too in conflict with Everything we've expressed, everything we've seen in this marathon, you're right that it does add another layer of melancholy, which would seem appropriate. So you could you could go with that argument. But for me, the idea that they ever did actually act like their spouses, that they gave in. In a way, maybe it makes them more human. But I don't think that's what Wong Kar is really interested in here. I think he's he's interested in the provocation of these people and the philosophical kind of consequences, the existential consequences of them making that decision and sticking to it. We won't be like them. So, I think my reading is the one where she has at some point separated from her husband, or perhaps he's passed. She did get a child from that marriage. And that you imagine allows her to be a little less alone in life, but it doesn't have to be Mr. Chow's kid.
0: I'm glad, you know, we may not add, we may not agree on hot
1: mustard as a sex toy, but I'm glad we agree on the ending (laughs) of in the mood for love. (laughs) In the mood for love is currently available in its new restoration on the criterion channel, as are all the titles in the world of Wong Kar Wai marathon. Next up, we will get to our World of Juan Car Marathon Awards. Yeah, we're going to call them the Tonys, and they can have their lawyers come after us, Josh. We'll lawyer up. And we also do promise we're going to watch 2046. Not only do we have to finish the box set, but we have to finish this informal trilogy. we got to see Tony Young and Maggie Chung back back together, if only in the world of 2046, which you do see on the door, right, of the hotel room. Yes, you do. In In the Mood for Love. So that is coming up on a future episode. I'm glad I uh, got you to blush, too, this time.
0: (laughs) All right. That conversation didn't entirely spoil my number one romantic gesture from In the Mood for Love. Find out what that is and what else made our list when we revisit the 2013 Film Spotting Top 5 when we come back. We'll also play a fresh round of Massacre Theater. Stay with us.
1: are being considered for the amazing opportunity of life. Winston Duke there in the trailer for the new film Nine Days, which is currently playing in limited release. It's the feature directing debut from Edson Oda, and along with Duke, stars Zazie Beats, Benedict Wong, and Tony Hale. Directing debuts and early career efforts are part of our criteria for the prestigious film spotting golden brick award josh you've seen nine days it not only is a film by an emerging filmmaker but it has a pretty provocative plot a reclusive man interviews human souls for the chance to be born would you say it's a golden brick contender
0: Yeah, I think also because another quality we look for is a strong vision that a film has, and it's probably Oda's uh, strong visual vision that kind of saves this, because it gets off to a little bit of a slow start um, and is a little talky. There's a lot of, you know, given that setup, as he's interviewing these folks, there's a lot of what a philosophical uh, scenarios he presents to them. And they have these conversations about what life, what makes life worth living. Um, But Oda adds some visual interest to all of this that eventually helps to kind of break that up a bit. For example, just one example is one room of the Winston Duke character, Will's house, is a full wall of retro television sets. And what's playing on these all the time are the first person POV of the souls he previously selected. So what they are doing in the lives that he gave them. So that's a very dynamic visual element that comes into play in the plot as well. And there are other touches that uh, Oda makes that uh, makes this pretty compelling visually, not just as a thought experiment, you know, it sounds like a thought experiment, it is one for a, a bit of its running time, but then kind of blossoms into something, something more. Um, it's playing in the same sandbox as Hirokazu Koreta's Afterlife, if you've seen that. And definitely Pixar's Soul, my number two movie, I think, from last year. Um, you know, bo- both of those with Pixar and Koreeda, you know, <laughs> accomplished filmmakers behind those movies So they're a little more delicate in their exploration of this, but as a debut, I think Nine Days is quite impressive. And it does build to this, I won't spoil it, but an amazing piece of performance for Duke. Um, The movie kind of circles around to become really about the Will character and um, why he conducts this job the way he does, how it's related to his past, and if there's any sort of future for him as this person who's in this sort of purgatory. Uh, And that all pays off in a wonderful climax. Um, that that's really uh, astonishingly performed by Duke. And if you are an English major, I'll just say you're you're really going to appreciate what he does in that final scene. So nine days, okay, so good
1: film. An audience of at least two, you and me. There you go. Yeah,
0: yeah. Nine days, Golden Brick, giving it the Golden Brick nod and would recommend if you can still find it in a theater uh, to check it out.
1: For more on the film spotting Golden Brick, Visit filmspotting.net slash bricks. Right now, I think only three films nominated so far. Pretty late in the year. We both have some work to do. I especially have some work to do because all three of the nominations, now four with nine days, are Josh Larson recommendations. St. Maude, Identifying Features, and Shiva Baby. So I'm behind I'm behind is what I'm saying, Josh, but I will catch up here at some point, I promise.
0: And fair to say, I mean, you know, I'm just saying this myself, but I think the field is still kind of wide open. Um, Yeah. Even you know, I've liked all of these, but I haven't seen, you know, something quite on the level of our winners before. And just kind of knowing your taste, I think you'd probably appreciate most of these as well, but I don't know if any of them would knock you out to that degree either. So uh, as always, listeners, you know, send in suggestions for these underseen, visionary early films um, that you've caught up with this year that we should add to our own catch-up list.
1: Yeah. Feedback at filmspotting.net. We would love your recommendations and you know I don't want to pat ourselves on the back too hard but I mean we have pretty good taste when it comes to these brick winners we we've picked some pretty good filmmakers who not only made a great film in the one that we eventually awarded but have gone on to make some pretty great films too
0: yeah it's a high bar it's definitely a high bar
1: next week here on film spotting it's going to be our fall movie preview and our previews here on film spotting take the form of our top 5 questions about the movie season. Again, we'd love to hear your questions. Feedback at filmspotting.net. We do plan, as I mentioned earlier, to spend at least a few minutes on the new Candyman from director Nia DeCosta. And I think not this weekend, but the next. Is that when Shang Chi is opening, Josh? And I don't think I'm gonna have a chance to see it. Now, prior to its opening, there was just that critic screening. But you, good critic that you are, made that screening. I'll go ahead and say if you don't follow Josh on any social media or Letterbox, that you're a big fan of the movie, and you at least will maybe have a few words about it next week on the show.
0: I will. I mean, it was such a wonderful surprise. Um, yeah, we're, I don't know how surprised we are by the MCU <laughs> these days, but this one got me, and it came up on uh, at trivia spotting too. Adam and a couple of the players there had seen it as well. A couple critics who play and seemed really positive. I think Kristen Lopez, if I'm remembering correctly, was a big fan of it too. So, so yeah, I'll I'll share more on next week's show.
1: Also next week, our poll results. The current film spotting poll is a good old-fashioned fall movie death match, though we usually like our death matches to be a little more drawn out, a little closer than this one is shaping up to be. It's Anderson v. Anderson. Wes's The French Dispatch comes to theaters in October. PTA's Soggy Bottom It's supposed to come out in November. The deathmatch rules are that you can only choose one. The other, you'll never see. The results so far are suspiciously and eerily similar to a very similar question we asked back in 2014. I mentioned this when we threw out this poll question that I recalled back in 2014 doing a similar deathmatch with two upcoming Anderson releases, the Grand Budapest Hotel going up against Inherent Vice. And so far, we must have the exact same listeners and voters we had in 2014, Josh, because it's going the same way. <laughs> that's,
0: what, that's what I was going to say. I mean, apparently, we haven't lost or gained a listener. It's just been the, the yep. same loyal crew for all these years. This week on our sister podcast, The Next Picture Show, it's a new pairing. Annette, ha-
1: Adam, have you... Have you Gone down the crazy wormhole that is a net yet. I still haven't seen it. And oh my gosh! I'll be I, honest, I'm I'm afraid. Oh, I'm a little afraid now. You should be very
0: afraid. Well, they're, they're pairing a nut with Francis Ford Coppola's One from the Heart. That's the 1981 film that followed Apocalypse. Now, a notable bomb, but also a very daring uh, and experimental musical. Uh, one that I wish I could be, I can't wait to listen to this. I'm i am sure there will be at least one, maybe two or more defenders of one from the heart on the next picture show. I wish I could be among them, but it was, even as I admired it, its experimentation, it didn't result in any sort of emotional connection. And this yeah. is, and this is a movie that has Terry Gower, who I love. So yeah. That's kind of held me back, but um, can't wait to hear what The Next Picture Show folks make of it. They will talk about that in the first edition, and then they'll get to Annette. Your Next Picture Show hosts are Tasha Robinson, Keith Phipps, Scott Tobias, and Genevieve Koski. New episodes of The Next Picture Show post every Tuesday wherever
1: you get your podcasts, and you can find more information at nextpictureshow.net. One way you can support film spotting is to join the film spotting family over on Patreon. $5 a month gets you membership into the family, you get early show downloads, you get monthly bonus episodes, we have another Bond edition coming up, our mini Bond marathon getting ready for No Time to Die, and this time we've gone from Connery to Roger Moore, it's The Spy Who Loved Me, the movie that a lot of aficionados say is the best Moore Bond film, I guess we will discuss that, Josh. Uh, we might discuss whether more is
0: the best bond. Oh,
1: oh, come on! Oh, we need to talk, Adam. <laughs> you, you need to rewatch one or two movies. But I will save it. I will save it for that bonus episode. And now, now you're intrigued. Admit it. Now you want to tune in, and you can only get that bonus episode delivered to wherever you listen to podcasts. If you are a film spotting family member, also only available to you as a film spotting family member is having the ability to buy tickets to our monthly trivia spotting events. It was our 13th in a row, though it was exactly the one-year anniversary. It was back during COVID, and I guess here we are again, Josh, right? But August 2020 is the first month. It's when we made our debut, and we've loved every one of these events. We had some great returning critics last time, movie phones Mariah Gates, Aisha Harris from Pop Culture Happy Hour, Kristen Lopez from IndieWire, The Next Picture Shows, Keith Phipps was on. And we had our great PA, Kat Sullivan, along with Isaac Feldberg, who's a really wonderful young freelance critic here in Chicago, formerly Boston. And of course, we had a new captain. We always do. Everybody loved having, from Vanity Fair, Joanna Robinson on trivia spotting and it was not joanna's team that won it was kristen lopez her second time playing trivia spotting she won it again
0: (laughs) you're so you're supposed to congratulate her not be so pissed adam you you
1: look so pissed it's just that it's the second time she's played and the second time my team is finished second to her so Mm. i i tried it's personal it's kristen got it Yeah. And, and I'm, I'm doing okay. It's been what, three or four days, Josh here, and I'll be over it soon.
0: Yeah. What's your, what's your timeline like? I know you take these things hard. Is it like two weeks that you're angry about trivia spotting? And Uh then the next two, two and a half weeks, you you start to like get excited and and think like this might be the time. Is that how it works? Okay. Plotting
1: revenge is what I'm doing. Kristen's winning team was thrice upon a time to kill. Wendy Fox Weber, Paul Oyama, Mark Roseman, John Madsen, Joe from Brooklyn, and Darren Gunn, the winners. Congratulations to Kristen's amazing team. Our September trivia is scheduled right now for Friday, September 17th. Tickets have not gone on sale yet. If you're not currently a family member and you want to get in on the fun, you can do that. Just join us. Patreon.com slash film
0: Let's play some Massacre Theater, the part of the show where we perform a scene and you get a chance at winning a film spotting T-shirt. A couple of weeks ago, Adam and I massacred this scene.
1: Would you speak to me? Ah, to speak. But sir, my sex are marked by their silence.
0: Oh, I would hear you speak if it cost me my ears.
1: That is well. But I do not want silence in my life. Tell me your name. name woman and what would you do with my name sir hunter call me a fox for that is all i am to you a fox oh then a fox you shall be until i find your name my foxy lady
0: the late heath ledger there alongside shannon Sossaman in 2001's a knight's tale written and directed by brian helgeland
1: along with that massacre we reviewed the green knight and we had our World of Wang Y review of Happy Together. I think you may have also snuck in a recommendation on that episode of The Suicide Squad, a movie I have since seen and also can recommend, Josh. So up is down, <laughs> left is right in the world. But Adam loves the DCEU. Yeah, yeah, that's it. So why then that scene from... A Night's Tale, here's Sarah Swale in Tacoma, Washington. I knew it was going to be A Knight's Tale before you even started. I'm an 80s kid, and this is a bad 90s movie, but one worth watching repeatedly, and I have. The obvious connection is that it is about, well, A night's Tale, like The Green Knight. The other obvious connection is that it stars Heath Ledger, who played the Joker, and a much better one than Jared Leto, who is conspicuously absent from The Suicide Squad. I am sure the hat is brimming, Fingers crossed, Sarah says.
0: Oh, nice, Sarah, with the Joker. Uh, Paul, I didn't didn't make that connection. And we should probably say, because I'm guilty of this, technically A Knight's Tale, 2001. Okay, I think I called it a 90s movie at you some did, point. And everyone clearly thinks of it that way. Yeah, well, that's because, you know, it's the 90s kids who love it. So there you go. Here's Gabe Bush. From Tampa, Florida. This week's entry is *A Night's Tale*, a movie that actually grows on me these days. It's a great play in the background flick, a la TNT standbys. I actually attended a wedding this June where the son and mother did the medieval slash Bowie song with the choreographed dance. <laughs> Who would have thought that part of the reception could be a highlight? Oh, of course it is. I guess the movie can't be all that bad. Gabe says, and hey, I would I would rather see
1: video of that uh, dance than watch the night in the movie.
0: Yeah, watch *A Night's Tale* again.
1: I'm going to say that you, Josh Larson, have at least at one point in your life done a choreographed dance. I So this
0: is interesting. I'm usually not a fan of choreographed dancing. Okay. Uh, it kind of limits me, Adam. And I believe <laughs> we've danced together once, right, at, at Tyler's wedding.
1: Yes. We
0: we held each other close. I don't know how much (laughs) attention you paid to my dancing. I don't do well with the choreography. Um, Now, I may have, there may have been a time in my life where I I was forced to do it, but it's not my preference. Okay.
1: Good to know. I'm glad we got that out the Mm -hmm. open. Jake Meltzer in Las Vegas says, Did Josh really have the audacity to call A Knight's Tale a bad movie? How could a movie with a fantastic movie star turn from Heath Ledger, a virtuoso comedic performance from Paul Bettany, remarkable chemistry between all its leads, and a fantastically smarmy villain in Rufus Sewell's Count Adhemar Adhemar, be a bad movie? (laughs) The tie-ins are pretty obvious. It's another middle-ages movie like The Green Knight with the word knight in the title that features a protagonist who isn't actually a knight, but who desperately wants to be one and goes through major adversity on the quest to become a true knight. Deep breath. On top of that, Heath Ledger became a major star after this movie, and if there's any justice, Dev Patel will go on to similar but hopefully more long-term success. Here, here. Now, here's why I really picked this bit of feedback yes i am one of those 90s kids that old fart josh likes to crap on for their taste in movies but maybe he should change his stars and give one of the most underrated movies of the 2000s wow one of my ultimate comfort movies another chance
0: jake going all in there with the underrated movies of the 2000s most
1: underrated i am sorry in the jake hominem attack i have seen but a I night's say tale if the loafers and the knee-high socks fit, Josh, wear them.
0: Yeah. I mean, old fart, perfectly willing to be called that. But I mean, let me hit 50 first, right? I kind of, <laughs> isn't that? Oh, it's coming. Yeah, it's coming. I know. And, uh, but give me a few years. Let me I enjoy know. these before I hit my golden
1: days. All right, Jake? <laughs> you can reach into that hat. And I know that Sarah is going to be so disappointed, not only because Sarah, spoiler, I'm not sure that you won. I don't know how I'd know that when Josh hasn't picked the winner yet, but I don't think you won. But also, the hat wasn't that brimming. So we must have threw people for a loop with our rendition. You're going to reach into the hat, nevertheless, and pick out this week's winner.
0: Or we picked a terrible movie that not many people have seen. It could be that, too, Adam. Our winner is
1: Adam Graff from Grand Rapids, Michigan. Congratulations, Adam. Email feedback at filmspotting.net, and we will set you up with your very own Film Spotting (laughs) t-shirt. No fellow's
0: dick, the play is over. Say what you have to say with speed and put the audience
1: out of their misery. We move on now to this week's edition of Massacre Theatre. And when I first saw the dialogue on the page here, my thought was this is way too long for Massacre Theatre. And then after watching the scene, I realized that if we say these lines as quickly as these performers do... We could have it done in about 7.2 seconds. I think
0: that's about right. Yes.
1: Very fast talking. There you go. Okay. I am definitely not prepared for this. It's it's accent work. It's not my strong suit. Acting in general, not my strong suit. But we're going to jump in. No rehearsal, (laughs) as always. And I don't think we need to tell listeners, Josh, any connection to the show or give any hints. No. Probably pretty obvious. Are you ready?
0: I am ready. And Adam, if you're having trouble getting into character, fully investing in this, yeah. I want you to imagine that there is uh, a little bit of hot mustard between us on the table.
1: <laughs> okay. I will I will go with that. I will go with that. I'm kind of an outside-in type of actor, so I'll take take whatever I can get out of my environment and I'll try to apply it to the scene. You're going to give me the action. And action there's your train yes you mustn't miss it no what's the matter
0: nothing nothing at all really
1: it's been so very nice i've enjoyed my afternoon enormously
0: i'm so glad so have i i apologize for boring you with the long medical words i feel dull and
1: stupid not to be able to understand more shall i see you again it's on the platform isn't it you'll have to run don't bother about me mine's not due for a few minutes can i see you again Yes, of course. Perhaps you will come out to Ketchworth one Sunday. It's rather far, I know, but we should be delighted. Please, please. What is it?
0: Next Thursday, the same time.
1: No, I couldn't possibly. Please, I
0: ask you, most humbly.
1: You'll miss your train. All right. Run. Goodbye. I'll be there.
0: Thank you, my dear. And And scene.
1: Scene. Woo! How did we do? That was quick. I mean, it was all in one take. It was all in one It take. really no editing, was. No editing magic. We did that like like professionals. Professionally bad actors, but we did it like professionals. If you know what film we just massacred, and you really should, email the movie's title along with your name and location to feedback at filmspotting.net. The deadline is Monday, September 6th. The winner will be selected randomly from all the correct entries and announced in a couple of weeks. It was not Star Wars, despite Josh's C-3PO impression. <laughs> It's now time for a little Film Spotting Revisited. We are going back a ways here. Mm -hmm. Valentine's Day weekend, 2013. Our top five screen romantic gestures. It seemed like a pretty good pairing to me within the mood for love, Josh. And then it just so happens, talk about serendipity. I look back at our picks and, well, maybe, you know, we've kind of spoiled it already. But before we get to your number one, we hear you articulate the reasons for it being your number one, as you glance over your choices. Sometimes, you know, when you go into the archive, especially eight years ago, you look at top fives and you get a little nervous, like, <laughs> do my picks hold up? Yeah. What was I thinking? I'm going to say it. I think our picks hold up, both of us Yeah. well.
0: Yeah. I, I mean, nothing I'm embarrassed by. Uh, I'm sure we've seen a lot of movies since, what, 2013. So I'm sure maybe there's something we would add. And, you know, maybe, based on our conversation, maybe I would switch my In the Mood for Love pick to the scene you asked me about or that came to the top of my head, mm. you know, if, if that one just um, registered a little different differently for me this time. But I feel pretty good about having In the Mood for yeah. Love at number one. I
1: think you got to keep the one that you went with. Now, as you'll hear, we named this, or at least I named it, my Say Anything Memorial list, even though that did precede our 2015 Sacred Cow revisit of that movie. What can I say? I'm a sucker for 80s Cameron Crowe. We did mention some Pantheon titles during the top five, like Letting Elsa Go in Casablanca, the scene between Indy and Marion when she tends to his wounds in Raiders of the Lost Ark. Now, some movies that were unmentioned and are now in the Pantheon and maybe weren't then. The Apartment, the Apu Trilogy, the Before Trilogy, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, and The Graduate. So yes, we did exclude either intentionally or unintentionally some pretty good choices, but again, I stand by where we both landed here, Josh, with this top five romantic gestures. Now, maybe not so romantic is my voice during this episode clearly going through some kind of february cold when we taped this episode i'm i'm a little nasally oh, no. i don't know what to say yeah sam sam and golden joe they are magical producers but they couldn't fix my nasally audio nevertheless we're going to share with you from february 2013 our top five romantic gestures enjoy Look, Dan, I'm sorry, but I can't allow you to leave the country without attending the Lear's graduation event. This gentleman is 22, and, and, and he comes out hiding like, once a year for this occasion. And he, and he, and he dresses up as the Lakeside Rooster, and he, and he makes this drink called the Purple Passion.
0: Actually, I think
1: that, uh- You know, and you're not in England yet. You
0: know that, of course. But by the way, I wanted to just tell you that I lived in England for three months. And my parents lived in you know, so we lived in England. And in Germany, that could give you an enormous amount of tips. Many tips.
1: English tips. Well, no tips, no many tips of any kind. In honor of Valentine's Day, we're sharing our top five movie romantic gestures. From that clip, you can ascertain that it is our Say Anything Memorial, our Lloyd Dobler Memorial. Had to be. Movie romantic gestures list. I do think it had to be. Maybe that scene there as he's sharing his tips or at least suggesting he can share tips with her, many tips. Probably not. The biggest romantic gesture in the film, certainly a romantic advance, but there are a lot of them. Famously, the boombox, mm-hmm. the in-your-eye sequence, though that's also a sequence filled with a lot of spite <laughs> and a lot of anger. <laughs> we don't remember that it that sequence. way, though. No, we don't. We remember it as an expression of his undying love for her and his desire to get her back. There's also the great sequence with the pen, The mm-hmm. fact that the fact that he says... I gave her my heart. She gave me a pen. Maybe in some ways the anti-romantic gesture from Diane Court. So again, it's our Say Anything memorial list. Josh, is this obvious or did you come up with any special criteria to form yours?
0: Well, first of all, I want to explain why I brought the pottery wheel from Ghost in here. Oh, no. If I don't like any of your picks, I'm pelting you with clay. This is going to get messy. If you picked the pottery (laughs) wheel scene from Ghost, I'm throwing the whole wheel at you. I did not. Good. (laughs) We're good then. Uh, You know, this was terribly hard to narrow down and there were just so many good options. But in the end, I sort of just let the pressure go about angering people because it's so personal too. Yeah. So, I may anger one person one way and another person a different way. I mean, everyone's going to have a different list. And what was indicative of that is many people suggested via Twitter or email the same movies, but they had different scenes. Right. So, yeah, you could really go in the rabbit hole here trying to pick out the right ones. I just went with what felt right to me. And a lot of times I went with the movies I think of as being romantic and then started to look for the best scene that exemplified that. And I think my number five worked that way it's the 1946 version of beauty and the beast this is jean cocteau's surrealist interpretation of the fairy tale it's the one with the arms sticking out of the hallways as candelabras that's Mm -hmm. just an image that has always stuck with me it has jean marais as the beast he's got tons of her and what's a pretty good mask a pretty good beast mask for 1946 he towers over Josette Day as Belle in this movie the scene i'm thinking of comes fairly early on it's his first marriage proposal to Belle at dinner and at this point she's still terrified of him
1: chaque soir a avant de disparaître je devrais vous poser une question Toujours la même. Quelle est cette question Belle, voulez-vous être ma femme
0: Non, la bête.
1: Adieu donc, Belle.
0: It's not exactly the proposal that I find romantic, but more his response to her frightened rejection of him. He very gallantly accepts her no, says goodbye, just kind of backs out of the room. But he does promise that he's going to be back and he's going to ask her again the next night at the same time at dinner. There's this romantic persistence Mm -hmm. to it. And I think that scene captures what haunts us about that movie, the dangerous eroticism that it has, that the beast is this gentleman, but also a threat.
1: Yeah, that's a fantastic pick. For me, it's very funny. We approach this differently, Josh, because I also just went with choices that felt right to me. But it was only after I came up with my top five and then I had my honorable mentions too that were fighting for a top five slot that it occurred to me that I didn't really have any really romantic films, like the films that I would think of as... Great romantic comedies, especially Mm -hmm. maybe I can share some of them as we get through our lists here But I noted those as movies that should be great candidates for this list But somehow got left off mine and I was looking for that hook like I always do with the top five What's the personal reason? What's the personal attachment? To these films and to these moments that say romance to me. I never really came up with it again It goes back to just sort of feeling right though in looking at my top five There's a combination of picks where someone makes a tremendous sacrifice to show their love for someone. And then the other choices are moments that just almost create the ideal moment in your mind, the ideal kind of romantic experience when you talk about that movie moment sweeping somebody off their feet. Mm-hmm. There's at least one choice like that here on my list. We should point out that Casablanca is in the Pantheon. Yes. It's in the Film Spotting Pantheon. So that sacrifice, letting her go, if you want to consider that very romantic, and most people do, and rightfully so, it's not going to be on our list. But Raiders it is too pantheon. is in the Pantheon, and I thought about that, the scene on the ship. Yeah, I could see that. For me, too, I also put two movies that really belong as, one, into the penalty box, into my penalty box, because it's come up recently on the show a few times. It's definitely come up a lot over almost eight years now of doing the show, and that's Before Sunrise and Before Sunset. I think the ending of Before Sunrise is a great romantic gesture, and I also think the ending of Before Sunset is a great romantic gesture. I'm thinking of Celine in this case in her action towards Ethan Hawke's Jesse, but we're not going to touch those. They're in my penalty box. I'll get to my number five, and when I said movies that I don't really think of as romantic, this is a prime case of that, but I love this moment. It's actually the Arthur Penn film, the classic film from 1968, Bonnie and Clyde, and the moment is The Ballad of Bonnie and Clyde. What you writing? I'm um, writing a poem about us. Yeah? Mm-hmm. Let me hear it. Okay, <laughs> just let me finish this. One. Um, it's called The Story of Bonnie and Clyde. You've heard the story of Jesse James, of how he lived and died. If you're still in need of something to read, here's the story of Bonnie and Clyde.
0: You think if I sent that into newspapers at printed,
1: I'm going to do it. Arguably my only choice that was not intended as a romantic gesture. As I think about it, it was probably not done by Faye Dunaway's Bonnie with the intent of producing a romantic response, and it may not have even been done with the intent of producing a response at all, meaning I think she just would have done it anyway to express herself whether Clyde, played by Warren Beatty, of course, ever became aware of it or not or reacted the way he did, but she writes a poem near the end of the film that foretells their death. It's The Ballad of Bonnie and Clyde, and I love this gesture because I love the ambiguity of it. I think this is a case where the viewer can decide how romantic it is or how sweet a moment it is or whether it's actually just as ugly as some of the acts they commit as bank robbers because if you remember the film, they made a bold choice with Warren Beatty to make him impotent. And Clyde is someone who has never performed sexually with her. They've never fully consummated their relationship. And it's only after the poem, after she reads this poem, out of the newspaper that's been published in all these newspapers that he's finally so turned on that he's able to overcome his dysfunction and perform that way. And I think you could be cynical about it and say, well, of course, he only is moved to act sexually after this realization of his fame and his legacy. It's this very selfish thing. And I think there's no doubt that Arthur Penn and the writers, Robert Benton and David Newman, want us to at least consider that. But I actually think it's all about, Josh, where you put the emphasis on his response, what he says to Faye Dunaway. You can focus on all the times he says, me and my, or you can focus on all the times he says, you. He says, you just did that for me. It's about what she did for him. The fact that she selflessly told his story. She made something he longed for possible, and that then leads to... That response, the physical manifestation of their love, so again, maybe not a very romantic movie, though, in a lot of people 's minds the the wardrobe and kind of that era it brought back a certain style, a romantic style, but it's not conventionally a romantic couple. I still think that moment and that ballad is a really romantic gesture. Well my number four is a little less violent than Bonnie
0: and Clyde. Just a little a, less, just a touch it 's lady in the tramp it 's the <laughs> spaghetti scene, the dinner in the alley, of course, but first. You have to remember that this all takes place with the sounds of Bella playing in the background. The waiter is serenading them. Now, that's perhaps a little bit of a cheesy choice, but nonetheless, it is an effective mood setter. And I'm not exactly talking about the moment we all remember where they... Both are slurping on the same noodle and they come together and their noses touch, though that's that's a great Disney moment. But right after that is another little touch where the tramp noses over the last meatball Mm -hmm. on the plate towards Lady's direction. And if you know anything about dogs willingly giving up the last scrap (laughs) of food, you don't get much more romantic than that. So I don't know. I just, this isn't a Disney classic by any means. I do like the film, but... It was the one that first came to my mind when I was thinking of some of the Disney animated films, which have, you know, though they're aimed at children, they still often do have this romantic element to them
1: that adults still pick up mm-hmm. on and appreciate and this one sticks with me. I know that's one that came in at least once on Twitter as well. We threw this out to our Twitter followers at Film Spotting. The hashtag was MovieRomanticGestures. And if you're listening and you want to share your pick, we encourage you to go to Twitter and do that. Use that hashtag MovieRomanticGestures. And hopefully we'll be able to feature a few of those on a future show. Let's go from my Bonnie and Clyde pick at number five to something that's unambiguously romantic. I talked about being swept off your feet. How about a character literally sweeping another character off her feet Joe Cocker, Jennifer Warnes, Deborah Winger, slaving away at her factory job. Richard Gere. Are you really? Walks in, looking stunning in his white naval uniform, struts in, picks her up carries her away to the cheers of all the onlooking women, most of whom have long given up on their Prince Charming dream coming in to take them away. And the whole movie is building up to this moment. Zach Mayo, of course, Richard Gere, he's this distant character. He's a loner. He's unwilling to commit, to follow through and finish anything. And at the end of the movie, he actually graduates with his class. And rather than turning his back on Paula, the girl he's had a good time with and developed somewhat of a relationship with, after he gets what he wants, he doesn't leave her like... Her real father did to her mother when he became a pilot. Instead, he graduates and he comes into the factory and takes her away. And if you don't get a little bit choked up and want to get up and cheer, yeah, what's wrong watching with me? That, Adam, tell me what's you're wrong. Crazy. With me. You're I'm just playing crazy. You're huh? insane. You have no heart. If that moment doesn't work for you, Josh,
0: what's gonna get me in more trouble? Criticizing duck soup. And saying it's not a comic masterpiece or saying that this is the cheesiest, oh, corniest scene Sometimes, ever. Sometimes you got to embrace the cheese, Josh. Uh, couldn't do it. Sorry. Number three for me, nothing quite as cathartic at all. As a matter of fact, hugely tragic. It comes from Brokeback Mountain, and it's the final scene. Tragedies do grab a hold of us, romantic tragedies, in a way that happy ending films often don't. And that's certainly true of Ang Lee's 2005 cowboy romance. The movie ends with this code of years Mm -hmm. after the majority of the action. It's after the death of Jake Gyllenhaal's character, Jack, where we see Ennis, played by Heath Ledger. He's living in what appears to be this lonely life in a trailer. The impression is he still hasn't found happiness. He hasn't gone back and tried to live a lie again by getting married. He's on his own, but he still hasn't found anyone like Jack either. So it's just a very depressing situation we see there. He does get a visit from his grown daughter. And after she leaves, he goes to hang something up in an open closet. And we notice that hanging there on the door is a shirt of Jack's. And earlier we saw Ennis visit Jack's parents house right. and that's where he comes across the shirt. And I
1: thought you might go with that moment. That's well, the famous one that was in the trailer and thing where he's hugging the shirt. It is and
0: it works but it's also and maybe this is why I resist an officer and a gentleman a little bit. It's also very out there. It's it's a crying scene. It's yes. very emotive and and you know purposefully so. But somehow it doesn't get me quite as much as this final one where Ennis just simply buttons the shirt yeah. with care and you can tell on his face that the pain is still just as fresh as in that earlier scene, and for some reason, just that little bit of holding back that Ledger does makes it all the more powerful. I mean, this this is this is a moment that just sent people out of theater and sobbed. Yeah.
1: so yeah, Brokeback Mountain is a fantastic choice. You're listening to Film Spotting, and on our Valentine's Day, we're sharing our top five movie romantic gestures. And I'm going to go with a pick for my number three that has a lot more happy ending than Brokeback Mountain does. It's the great Powell Pressburger movie, A Matter of Life and Death, with David Niven as the star, also Kim Hunter as his love interest in this film. And I guess I have to give a little bit of plot background if people aren't familiar with this movie. It is a film that was part of our Powell Pressburger marathon a few years ago here on the show, where you have a pilot in World War II, British pilot, and he's going to go down, and he knows his death is imminent, and he ends up talking to this American radio operator who's based out of England. It's Kim Hunter, and they develop this connection in his final moments. He knows he's about to die. He has to leave the plane without a parachute. There's no way he's going to survive this, and yet somehow he ends up on the beach, and he does survive, and the reason why is the conductor, Mariusz Goring, who's fantastic, who was sent to go get him and bring him up to the other world. It's not called heaven. It's just called the other world. He lost him in the fog and didn't catch him and he survives. But then there's this legal battle of, okay, what's really going to happen to him? Maybe they need to need to off him anyway, basically, because they need to put things right and bring him back up to the other world. And the key scene is the end of the film where we get the moment where Roger Livesey, the great actor who is in so many Paul Pressburger films, plays his lawyer making the case for him for why he should be able to continue to live and go back to earth and be with Kim Hunter. And the only way they can make their case and she can really prove her love for him is to be willing to leave him, to be willing to go up that staircase, that immaculate, wonderfully designed staircase in the other world and take Peter's place and let him go back to earth. June, you know me well. Do you trust me? Yes, Frank, I trust you. It is absolutely necessary that you take Peter's place in the other world. Have you gone mad? If you really love him, June, step onto
0: this staircase and come with us. You are mad! It is the only way to prove your love.
1: I do love him.
0: You shan't go! My lord, I asked the court to restrain him.
1: Granted. Fortunately, for all of us watching and for them the powers that be decide that they really do need to be together and that he deserves to live, and they both get sent back to Earth. And that moment, that sacrifice, her being willing to do that for him is a romantic gesture that I just had to have on this list. Yeah, that's a Powell Pressburger I haven't seen, so put it on the catch-up list.
0: My number two speaks a little bit to what I said at the start about picking the same movie as other people but having different moments because it comes from Edward Scissorhands. And on Twitter, Marissa Jude, her handle is symptoms. Actually suggested the one where Edward and Kim embrace and Kim played by Winona Ryder delicately arranges his blades so that they won't cause any harm. I do love that touch. I think it's a great touch, but I actually went in a different direction. They're decorating for Christmas in the neighborhood at this point in the film and Edward carves out this giant ice sculpture of an angel in Kim's yard and one gesture here what I like about this scene is there are a couple gestures going back and forth both of them romantic one of course is the carving it's Edward expressing his affection for Kim and especially how it creates this delicate falling snow and ice in the yard it's it's sort of not only his gesture of affection but him proclaiming his worth as a person because that's one of the underlying themes here of course but I do think that the return gesture is just as important the one that Kim gives, and it's simply to dance beneath the snowflakes, because all throughout, she's being forced into choosing her cool friends or Edward. I mean, it's it's a very basic high school story on a lot of levels, but here by dancing, she's recognizing him as someone with something to offer, uh, someone who's worth caring for. And so many of Burton's films are about just that, an outsider finding their place finding their acceptance. And
1: I love how it all comes together in that moment. I don't know if Edward Scissorhands qualifies quite yet as a sacred cow, but it's one I wouldn't mind throwing into the discussion as a movie that we should reconsider or a classic film, because I have to confess, it's a movie for me that I do remember seeing. But like a lot of films I saw around that age when it came out, I saw it on TV, HBO or something, and I would just catch it in parts. And when you talk about scenes from it, I recall them. But otherwise, I have no actual memory of the movie I don't have any attachment to it all I see in my head is him snipping the hedges and that's all I really (laughs) remember of the film and I know there's so much more to it I need to see it again
0: I've seen it more recently than that I fell in love with it right away and that's kind of one good criteria for a sacred cow. I don't know if I could bear
1: to go back to it and have it hold up, though. Really? Yeah, <laughs> yes, that I would be hard. <laughs> well, my number two choice would be ripe for a sacred cow if it wasn't a film that's already been discussed on the show, though not with you, Josh. It was part of our new Hollywood marathon, just like Bonnie and Clyde, now that I think of it. Back in 2008, I think we included it here on the show. I don't begrudge anyone not thinking of this movie or this scene. My gesture here as overly romantic but it is certainly one of the most famous, most brazenly romantic gestures I can think of in movie history, and I've just got one word for you. Elaine. Of course, that's the ending of The Graduate. And yes, you can ask, is it romantic if you're not sure the gesture was really the right thing or handled the right way? It's easy to doubt whether Elaine and Benjamin should really be together. I think even before we get that classic final shot on the bus is just such a reckless and I'd say potentially selfish gesture that it's hard to fully get behind. And yet there's that moment where this marriage is is over it's finished they're kissing the music has started playing he seems to have even sort of given up on it he's watching through the glass of course and he just says oh no or oh god and that's it he's given up and then there's that spark where he just can't let this go he cannot let elaine go he can't fathom not being with her and he acts he starts banging on the glass he comes down there and there is that great line where mrs robinson says it's too late you can't do this, you're married, and she says, not for me. It's not too late for me, suggesting, of course, that I don't have to subscribe to this WASP lifestyle, this image that you've concocted, marrying the perfectly Aryan frat boy college guy. I can do whatever I want. I still have the possibility of finding love and finding some romance and not just resigning myself to this type of life and being unhappy. And when you think about that WASP culture and you think about what Mike Nichols as a Jewish person was doing with Dustin Hoffman in that lead role. It's of course not a surprise at all that that scene culminates with him waving a giant cross at everyone (laughs) to keep them away, (laughs) which is really not subtle at all, but also kind of hilarious. So for me, in terms of just pure spectacle as a romantic gesture, the graduate had to be there, had to
0: be there. But it's interesting because the more you talk about it, the less romantic it seems, especially because... It's sounding like, and this makes sense, it was her rejection of that life more than any embrace of Benjamin. Possibly. It's like she just saw him as her way out. Maybe. Something that, which the final shot would also, of course, communicate too. So, yeah, yeah, that is one of the classic scenes of all time. All right, we're at our number ones already, and mine comes from In the Mood for Love, um, a movie that... Boy, it's almost 98 minutes of romantic gestures, actually. This is Wong Kar-wai's 2000 film about neighbors in a 1962 Hong Kong apartment building. They have this simmering passion for each other, but they won't act on it, even though they suspect their respective spouses are having an affair with each other. So you can see this restraint just makes everything they do, smoke a cigarette, make a phone call, share a meal, everything is this subtle attempt to communicate their feelings, to make some sort of gesture. Now, there's got to be some sort of release from all of this. I mean, watching this is almost unbearable. Yet all Wong Kar Wai gives us is the final scene. So that's what I'm picking. And you have to remember an earlier conversation in the film where Tony Leung's character talks about this tradition, an ancient tradition in which someone with a secret would, I believe he says, climb to the top of a mountain, make a hole in a tree, whisper that secret into it, and then cover it with mud. Well, the final scene finds Leung alone at the temples of Angkor Wat. And there's this hole in the wall there. He leans forward and he whispers into it. Now, that's probably not the release that viewers really were looking for. We wanted more than that throughout the movie. But I think the fact that that's all we get, that that's all he gives us, is the reason
1: that In the Mood for Love really endures in our romantic imaginations as much as it does. I love that pick because I love that film. And I also love your explanation because you're right. It is a film that's all about gestures because they can't say it. They can't actually come out and express their feelings for each other. So it's all in those little actions. And it also provides a perfect segue into my number one pick. I'm going with another final scene, another classic cinematic final scene, and one that is all about physical displays, physical gestures. Because in this case, they're not just restraining themselves. They actually can't talk because the movie... He's not a talkie. It's a silent film, and it's Charlie Chaplin's City Lights. This is a movie that really is all about the sacrifices that the Tramp character is willing to make for Virginia Cheryl's character. She's just called a blind girl. He takes a job as a street sweeper at one point. He takes an absolute beating in a boxing match trying to earn money for her to have an operation to cure her blindness. Later, he's thrown in jail. It's all initially just to keep her from being evicted from her apartment and then later to get that operation. And it all leads to one of the sweetest endings you'll ever see and certainly one of the best close-ups you'll ever see where the tramp comes across her in a shop window. She has had the operation. It's successful. She can see now. And the moment is her discovering by touching his hand that it's him. He's the guy who helped her, who allowed her to have this operation. And that smile on Chaplin's face that closes the film before it, Iris is out. will just melt your heart. It's clearly an expression of joy that she's doing so well and that he had some role in that. But Even if he doesn't necessarily, and we can read into this, expect them to be together forever, I think there is in that final moment when she recognizes him that glimmer of hope that maybe they have a future together. I also think City Lights is a great pick for this list because while not every gesture is romantic, they're a key part of that great end scene, not just that touching of his hand and them having that moment where they realize who the other person is but he's holding a flower in his hand that he got from the gutter and it's falling apart but it almost seems like he's presenting it to her as a present and she gets a fresh new flower and comes out as a gesture and presents him with that new flower and also gives him a coin she could have ignored him but instead comes out with that flower and that coin and offers him this simple gesture of kindness. And that gesture of kindness is what leads to that happy ending. City Lights is my number one. Yeah,
0: it's another two-way gesture scene very much. And it it was my number six, actually. I struggled with
1: whether or not to put it in.
0: So definitely glad that it made it on yours. I guess I'll have to count it as an honorable mention for me. I had a couple others of those. The Wedding Singer, I remembered Adam Sandler singing I Want to Grow Old With You to Drew Barrymore on the plane. So I watched that again. It's funny. I liked it. But it's hard to call anything Adam Sandler does truly romantic except for Punch Drunk Love. I think it works in there. Uh, The other one, it wasn't necessarily a scene of mine, but it came up so much, especially on Twitter, was Will Ferrell bringing Maggie Gyllenhaal flowers. baking flour, of course, in Stranger Than Fiction.
1: I had forgotten about it, but I watched that too. It's a pretty good scene. Is it That one did come up a lot and made me feel bad because that movie was reviewed here on the show. I didn't love the film, so that wasn't a gesture that really stuck out. But yeah, I wanted to watch it again because so many people brought it up. I'll mention a few here. The Princess Bride, one of the all-time great romantic films brought up earlier on the show. I would just say the whole movie is one long (laughs) romantic gesture. It's hard to pinpoint just one. Another one that came up, I think on Twitter, and I get it, but didn't quite fit for me, was Harold and Maude. The ending of Harold and Maude, because for me, it just wasn't about romance, really. It's not not Eros, which I was thinking of Eros for this list. It's more an expression of his willingness to embrace life, and while that would have moved Ruth Gordon in that film, I don't know if it's all that romantic. People can debate that with me. I'm actually coming up short here, Josh. I can't find my whole list, and that's fine, because we've babbled on long enough, but some of the movies that I thought about should have been obvious candidates for this list that I didn't dive into I think about Lubitsch films like Mm Ninotchka and The Shop Around the Corner and some Hitchcock movies like Notorious I think is ripe with candidates I also feel like I have to acknowledge John Hughes think about the 80s romantic comedies all of them Pretty in Pink The Breakfast Club Sixteen Candles they're full of some great gestures and we could go on and on and on I really look forward to getting the feedback and if you have top five picks you want to share just email us feedback at filmspotting.net I really hope that inspired us, Josh, back in 2013 to offer something romantic towards our wives on that Valentine's Day weekend.
0: Oh, I, I'm sure if I said to Debbie right now, what romantic gesture did I give to you in 2013 on Valentine's Day? She'd have it. Yeah. She, it would yeah. come immediately to mind.
1: Yep. Yep. Same here. That is our show.
0: If you want to connect with us on Facebook or Twitter, or how about Letterboxd? I've had some good interactions with listeners there lately. Adam is at Film Spotting at all those places. I'm at Larson on film. In the show archives at filmspotting.net, you can find reviews, interviews, and top fives going back to 2005. And you can also vote in the current Film Spotting poll. You can watch One Anderson this fall, Wes's French Dispatch, or PTA's Soggy Bottom. Which one is it going to be? To order show t-shirts or other merch, visit filmspotting.net slash shop. And you can subscribe to our weekly newsletter at
1: filmspotting.net slash newsletter. Out in wide release this weekend, Candyman, a movie we do plan to see and talk about on next week's show. Also, Josh, at least, will have a recommendation of Marvel's Shang-Chi, and we will have our fall movie preview.
0: Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe Disseau and Sam Van Halgren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Our production assistant is Cat Sullivan. Thanks also to Candace Griffiths and the listeners of the Film Spotting Advisory Board. And special thanks to everyone at WBEZ Chicago. More information is available at WBEZ.org. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson.
1: And I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye.